do we want to answer question 17 which is like what would you share with someone who is thinking oh. about doing salt i mean isn't that kind of the, everything here <laughs> in a way yeah okay yeah 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 you're right <laughs> welcome to a unique episode of undercurrents or is there something else for this special episode i sit down for a conversation with kristen kong undercurrents producer world traveler and just an all-around all-star we share stories and reflect on a shared experience that each of us had separately, nearly 20 years apart. We're talking taxi driver bodyguards, singing in the workplace, joining the army, and more. This episode is about the SALT program. SALT, which stands for Serving and Learning Together, is an iconic MCC program that is celebrating its 40th birthday this year. SALT sends young adults from North America to volunteer with MCC partners around the world for 11 months in jobs ranging from school teacher, policy analyst, to health program administrator, and much more. Undercurrents is brought to you, as always, by Kindred Credit Union. Kindred's purpose is cooperative banking that connects values and faith with finances, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. Through programs and community engagement, Kindred empowers young people to be changemakers in their local communities. Rolling. Um, so Kristen, <laughs> here we are, here we are in person for the first time doing undercurrents in person together. Yeah, that's right. I'm Ken Ogasawara, host of Undercurrents, and I went on the SALT program, serve, uh, Serving and Learning Together, in 2001, 2002. And I went to rural Uganda as a primary school teacher. So my name is Kristen Kong, and I assist and support Ken in many different ways for the Undercurrents podcast. And I went on the SALT program, actually, I believe 2019 to 2020 um, in South Africa. Uh, so this assignment, I worked for an organization called Sinom Lando Center. And in Zulu, that means we have a history. And so this organization was really born out of actually psychosocial practices of storytelling for those um, living with trauma. Hmm, interesting. Mm -hmm. That sounds like real work. Yeah. <laughs> Were you qualified for this work? I was not qualified for this work. Not at all. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect, but you know what? This workplace actually inspired me to do the work that I do now, so I'm very thankful for that. Are you one of these types that um when you're when you're going into something you like prepare for it? You do some you do research, you sort of like, okay, what am I getting myself into? What is this? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I feel like when people travel, they, you know, go to the libraries, they get all those travel books. We have Google now. But I actually felt the opposite. I didn't do that much research other than my plane ticket there. I felt like it was my family and friends that did most of the research to me. And then they kind of relayed information, maybe accurate, maybe false, who knows. Um, but I kind of wanted to go in with not too many expectations and just really going in, yeah, with everything as a surprise and just taking it in as it is. Because I think books and Google maybe have different perceptions about these places than when you actually go there. That's a really, really good point. To me, the, the very definition of culture shock is 
the difference between what you expect and what the reality is. But yeah, there was not, I also had very little expectations and therefore that kind of like whatever happened, I was like, oh, this is happening. And, um, and I'll just sort of say yes to a lot of things and kind of roll with it. And that was sort of my motto for the year was just to sort of say yes. What were ways that you made friends and how did you bond with your host family? My friends were made through my host family. So um, this woman named Dorcas Mutabazi was my host, host mom. She was amazing. She had um, four biological children, but she had another like 10 kids living with her like orphans that she was just helping to raise and some of them like you know like late teens sometimes even early 20s so those guys were my first friends and then slowly as we go out into the community people will get to know me and um yeah that was the other thing too is i made a lot of friends through the children maybe not like close friends but i felt like known and felt acknowledged by the community yeah like oh that's teacher ken yeah. And I and then it was because the kids would be like, Oh, that's it. they're pointing at me and like telling their parents. And so then I didn't feel so like ooh awkward in this situation. I'm walking on the street and like everyone's looking at me like who's this guy? <laughs> Once I saw my kids out there, the, my students, it felt suddenly like safer and kind of more like, Okay, the kids are looking out for me kind of thing. Yeah. How about you? So I bonded with my host family through being in the kitchen a lot. They had this small stool, and I remember the first time I entered the house, I was so disoriented, super jet-lagged, and didn't know what to do, and it was about dinner time, and I just sat on the stool, and I think they didn't know what to do with me either, so I just sat there and observed them, and at the time, too, I was living with one of my host brothers. I also had three sisters, but only my host brother was home, Josh, and he was kind of peeking at me from the corners of the house and I would just sit there on this stool. Later, the kitchen became a place Josh and I bonded together and we learned how to make grilled cheese together. Um, How old was Josh at the time? Josh at the time, I believe, was nine or ten. Okay. Yeah. Now he's he's almost graduated high school. Wow. Wait, how's that? That's, That's only like three years ago. Yeah, so, oh, maybe he was, okay, fine. Maybe he was 13 then. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, 13. (laughs) Um, I know that you have a clip as well. Another way that you bonded with your brother, host brother Josh, you made this little like radio show. Yeah. Tell us about this. For sure. So after Josh and I became good friends, um, sometimes we would take Saturdays to do chores together. And one of our chores was washing the car because it was very dusty and so we started this little radio show called Kristen and Josh FM and we would just speak about different topics that we wanted we would blast the music in the car to incorporate the music but I remember our first episode was about wheels and we just spoke about wheels Josh and Kristen FM FM. first topic for today is going to be wheels It was also one way that I got to know him. Um, He was a very shy person, as in myself, and so I think this radio show 
really gave a platform to both of us to just ask each other questions without feeling too awkward. Speaking of awkward, we're definitely going to play that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And that's all for today. Enjoy the music. Bye. What was a pivotal moment in your faith while you were in your host country? Yeah, I could answer this one. This pivotal moment for me didn't actually, I don't think it really hit me until actually years later. Um, Godwin, who I mentioned as one of my, my host brothers, who I think is actually technically my host mom's nephew, and he's also a teacher, really smart guy, went to like one of the best high schools in Uganda and was really on track to have a great career. Like, which is a big deal. Like, education in Uganda is, is a big deal. And then by the, at the time that I had arrived in Kanungu and he was living with his aunt, he was sort of stalled. Like, he didn't feel like he was living up to his potential. He was teaching at this tiny little, like, school. You know, like, the, the pay was a lot of... The, it was not consistent. And I think, honestly, with my salt allowance, which was, like, 62 US a month or something was like more than what the teachers were making. So he was sort of feeling like a little lost. What am I doing here? And at one point I remember him saying, I'm thinking of joining the army. Uganda then and still is um, run, ruled by a former soldier. The army was one way to make a, a good living. And so he was considering it. And I was like, as a naive 19 year old Mennonite, I was like, how, how can you even consider that, Godwin? Don't join the army. Like, you could, you could get yourself killed and you could... So I said, like, have faith. Have faith in God. And he said, and he laughed. He laughed, he laughed at me. And he said, <laughs> but is that safe? Is that safe? And... Um, That's a good question. And he was... And I sort of said, like, of course it is. Like, just my naive sort of really, like with limited experience in my life and in my faith, of course, it's, it's the safest place you can be, Godwin. Just trust God, you know? But years later, I'm kind of thinking back on that. Like, he asked a really good question. Like, that's a real question that I was not prepared to, to really think about, which was, it's easy for me to say, like, I'm not living here forever. I'm getting an allowance, and at the end of my one year, I'm going to fly back to my wealthy, middle-class life, in this, you know, developed country where I don't have to worry about joining the army to make a living. In the end, what did Godwin do? He didn't join the army. He stuck with the schooling. But the challenges have not really gone away as far as like finding fulfillment in his career. And like he got a, a post in the government, but it's still nothing's paying well. He doubled down on education, got a few more degrees, like really was trying to jump through all the hoops, but it's still... Like, it's still not a great employment situation for him. And that question still remains, you know. In some ways, it haunts me. What was your mode of transportation and what was the experience like? My primary mode of transportation was just walking. That was the main thing. Our family didn't have a car. In fact, r most folks in my little community did not have their own car. For the most part, the only vehicles we saw were those little pickup trucks and these vehicles were just loaded with stuff 
people, livestock, everything, supplies. Yeah. How about you? What was your mode of transportation? Similar name. So they did call it taxis, but they're also minibuses. But it was like hitchhiking. So you would walk to the side of the road and to catch a taxi, one of these minibuses, you would stick your hand out with your thumb up. Um, and when they saw you, they would come, drive by, pick you up, open the door. It was also almost like those spy movies when the door opens and you just jump right in. Um, but I think the biggest thing, though, that was fearful for me was also to get off at your stop. You have to yell the name of the street. And I was just too embarrassed with no confidence or self-esteem to call out all these, you know, South African names. So I would actually just stay on the minibus until somebody else called the next stop. And so I also did a lot, lot of walking back to my workplace. <laughs> Um, but after a while, they adopted me. Actually, one time I was standing on the side of the road and my host dad, Baba Zulu, came by and was like, oh, Kristen, I'm going to the church, just hop in. And the minibus people came and they're like, don't go into this man's car. He's dangerous. Don't go into this man's car. And I was like, no, he's my dad. He's my dad. And of course, I don't look like my dad there. And so then he came out of the car and had to like negotiate, <laughs> you know, do some sort of mediation negotiation. And then in the end, they let me go in his car. That's hilarious. But I felt like, yeah, very protected by the minibus people after a while. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I know. So they really got to know you. So I think one thing I learned about myself was actually at my workplace when I first started, I needed to be on top of things. My manager pulled me aside and said, Kristen, you're, you know, you're too on top of things. You're meeting too many deadlines. You need to chill out. After she told me that, I, yeah, then in the morning started drinking Vorbis tea with my group mates. I was also the peach lady, so every lunch hour I would go and get peaches and we would all sit together sharing peaches. And that actually created such a beautiful, intimate work environment and I had such good relationships with my coworkers despite all the deadlines maybe passing us. And so I think that's one thing, I don't know if, yeah, maybe about myself is to take things a little bit lighter. <laughs> Didn't you also say that your coworkers would like to sort of burst into spontaneous song? Yeah, so it was a it was a very small workplace. You know, we didn't have our own desk or anything, so we kind of have had a conference table with chairs all around, and we would do our own work. And often, yeah, my coworkers would you know start humming, and then another coworker started humming, and then another coworker just took the spotlight and started singing, and our office just became a a choir space um, and that was a surprising thing and I loved it I wish more people sang here in workplaces do we want to talk about volunteerism and like that kind of thing yeah, we totally can. Um, how to? I think we can start off by saying that 
yeah, I had this kind of fantasy and also vision, I do have to say, about the SALT program. Being in another country is such a huge thing for a young person. Um, but also learning different things in school because I did international development and a lot of international development students love traveling the world, love going to all these places through different volunteer programs. But as I read many articles and literature, I became actually more, um, not skeptical, but more critical about these programs because what is the good that we are actually wanting to do in these countries was the question that kept going through my mind. And thinking about, you know, short-term missions trips and churches doing these, you know, two-week volunteer programs, what kind of impact are we actually doing in these communities? Or is it the impact actually on us um, as a person? And so, yeah, maybe the conversation is around impact and also sustainability of the work that we do. Right. Uh, Yeah, I have also since, uh, since doing SALT, and having grown up in a church that has done, a, you know, a lot of, you know, with youth groups and things, there's a lot of like short-term mission trips and things like that. So SALT is a good, is a is 11 months or so. And that is a good chunk of time to build real relationships. And I think for myself, I've gone back to Uganda twice since my SALT year. So there's been like basically a continued relationship, which I felt good about, Um that it wasn't sort of like a one-off thing that I, I went there and I found myself and took a bunch of selfies and then came back. The way MCC works is all about relationships and partnerships. I sort of feel good about the fact that regardless of whether or not that Salter is um, staying long-term, like MCC's relationship with the partners is long-term and um, those that work continues. And I think in many ways, a lot of relationships do continue there too. Let's get down to like, here's a good nitty gritty question, a very practical one as well. Practical. What was the best thing that you packed on your salt trip? I can answer actually what I should have packed on my salt trip. (laughs) It's actually a mini photo album of Canada and my family. People often ask you about your country, your family, what is it like? And being in Canada for most of my life, we don't get those questions because we live here. And so I wish I brought a mini photo album to just show what Canada or what my Canada was like. And it would have given a sense where I was coming from as a person. Okay, Kristen, what did it feel like to be a newcomer in a different country? I think because I'm not a newcomer in Canada, in Toronto, This was my first time truly being in a new country without my family and friends. And I think there were two things that come to mind. I kind of mentioned it before, but um, the loneliness at the beginning of coming to a new country was very different. Yeah, I found myself in bed at night alone a lot of the times wondering, who do I hang out with? Do I know anyone here? And it really brought me back to kindergarten, just that those very beginnings of your first day of school, not knowing who your friends are and really needing to put yourself out there. Um, But I have to say, though, being part of a church family that provides that almost instant community, even if you don't know them, but you have, you know that you share God with someone and that was kind of almost enough to feel fine. Um, And then the second one is that because I am a Chinese woman, in a, a context where there wasn't a lot of Chinese people in my city, that was very different. And I felt like a foreigner, a newcomer. 
people were very verbal about how I was different and even shouted on the street. You know, when I was walking to work, they would say, oh, look, there's a Chinese person. Right. We're both Asians in a place where Asians are very few and far between. In, in Uganda, they, it was interesting. I mean, the occasional person would say, China. But most of the time I'd get the word Muzungu, which is... I think a Swahili word for just basically foreigner, but it basically means like, it's usually colloquially referred to as just like white person. That was, yeah, very public and like immediate identifying of that. And like in the city, you'd get a lot of like kids waving and then the hand would would invert to like palms out, give me something. The economic power dynamic is immediately sort of felt. And, um, yeah, that was something that was um, I was not quite prepared for because I was not in a position of power as I went. I was just a young 19-year-old kid who was not in any kind of leadership or personal responsibility or anything. So I'm not used to being like this person that people look to for help or for money or whatever. It was very, um, I don't know, I guess awkward at the time. And disorienting. Yeah. Because you don't see yourself as that yeah. privileged person until right. you're in a context where other people kind of tell you that you're a privileged person. And and you have to sort of face up to it because the reality is, okay, okay, I'm 19. I don't have anything in the bank account. But if I ask my church, I could have hundreds of dollars in an instant. Just say, hey, like I want to fundraise for this. I have access to that. You know, there's like, no, there's definitely power imbalance that I had to sort of wrestle with and um, treat um, seriously. Kristen, you'd mentioned that this, just us talking here is sort of an opportunity to debrief kind of in a deeper way that then you otherwise have had. And I have the same experience in some ways because you get back from this year of just like, so much has happened, so much has changed, you've learned so much, you've seen so much, and you run into people at church or whatever, or like on the street, and they're like, how was it? I don't know, like how, how can you even answer that? And they're, they're like interested, but it's like- How interested? <laughs> how interested, right. And do you wanna sit down and talk for like two hours? How do we deal with the comeback and the come down from this trip? And this is for anyone who has gone on missions or traveled or lived in different places. Even if you describe your experiences, people don't really know how that made you feel or what that was like. And so I think it's really hard to share experiences. And yeah, that doubt of, do people actually want to know the things that I have to say? I think to myself, maybe people only want to know the good things, but I also experienced maybe difficult things, challenging things, sad things. Do they want to know that too? I get there is a sort of loneliness coming back too because you yeah. feel alone in your experience mm -hmm. yeah loneliness kind of bookends the beginning and end of these a little bit yeah well what did you do how did you you know when I came back I actually took a mini trip to Nova Scotia to decompress my thoughts to debrief with myself to reflect before coming home but I, I felt like I was lost again when I came home I didn't know what to do I think the abundance that we have here is overwhelming when you come back from places that may not have this. And so I also felt almost 
I don't know if it was guilt or shame, but knowing that every time I accessed something, I knew that some of my friends didn't have access to this, and that kind of felt bad. And still now, I don't even know sometimes how to navigate those feelings. And even keeping in contact with them through the pandemic, knowing that, yeah, we got vaccines way before some of many other countries that Salters are in. What do you do in those situations? How do you converse with your friends um, knowing that you have these, you know, privileges or access to these things? Right. Have we made a nice little arc? Have we landed the plane a little bit? Like we were now, we've now we've sort of debriefed the coming home experience. So one way that we can maybe wrap this up, I mean, I feel like more and more lately, um, people who are going with with a different, with more knowledge, with more intentionality, with more competencies, with more work and life experience, um, there may be you may be tempted to sort of treat it as a ref, like a resume booster or a kind of like professional development sort of thing but at its roots the salt program is really about building relationships and sort of looking to learn looking to challenge yourself looking to be humbled and to meet a lot of great people and to see new and and amazing things yeah any last words Kristen? no i think you said it all expect the unexpected This was just a part of a much longer conversation that Kristen and I had, but if you have any more questions about the SALT program or know someone who is interested, go to mccoca slash SALT. The application process starts in January of every year, and the SALT year usually runs from August to August. Thanks to Kristen for not only helping to produce and edit this episode, but in sharing your own story this time as well. Sound mix by Francois Gaudreau, original music and theme song by Brian McMillan, and artwork by Jesse Bergen. Thanks as always to our friends at Kindred Credit Union for sponsoring Undercurrents. And thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode coming out in October, where we learn how a cup of soup can change the world. <laughs>